Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm not uh, going to talk about evolutionary theory in itself, right? Because uh, this is not my task as a theologian uh, and a philosopher to uh, prove or disprove uh, the theory of evolution. This is the task of scientists. So uh, we here assume at the beginning uh, of this lecture that uh, it is a, a theory that is widely accepted and it's a theory uh, that uh, should be taken in, into account when we think about the world that surrounds us. What interests me uh, are uh, philosophical presuppositions and philosophical and theological repercussions of uh, theory of evolution. Uh, in addition to this, I uh, approach this topic from the point of view of the Aristotelian Thomistic classical uh, school of thought. And uh, coming from this uh, angle, uh, I would first list uh, uh, several, uh, in my opinion, important aspects of this theory or repercussions of this theory uh, that are relevant, uh, again, from the perspective uh, of uh, uh, Aristotle and Aquinas. So I think that uh, where this school of thought uh, may be helpful uh, today in uh, the contemporary conversation uh, will, for, uh, first of all, uh, that would be an analysis of relevant and crucial philosophical categories that we, uh, in a way, have to take into account when we think about uh, evolution. For example, the entire conversation about species and the definition of species. Uh, this is a, a never-ending conversation in science and philosophy of science today. Here, uh, Aristotelian and Thomistic scholars would have something uh, interesting to say. Uh, then uh, the very idea of what change and transformations are and what would be the most general principles of change and transformation that will uh, apply to all changes and transformations in nature. Uh, then one of the crucial aspects of evolutionary theory, uh, goal-directedness or teleology uh, versus chance, right? Uh, here again, the classical school of uh, thought will, something in, uh, will have something interesting to say. Uh, and then uh, uh, analysis of metaphysical aspects, uh, specific metaphysical or trying to produce a metaphysical general model of uh, biological species transformations, uh, including uh, the um, alleged violation of the principle of proportionate causation, the classical principle which says that an effect cannot be more perfect than a cause or everything that is in effect has to be in the cause. Uh, so, Because this is an argument used uh, by some anti-evolutionists uh, who come from more classical perspective. Uh, so uh, this school uh, has something interesting to say about this and has to in a way address this problem if uh, it wants to speak about evolution. On the side of theology then, uh, the first question that uh, an, an average Christian uh, and Catholic would ask is obviously the exegesis and interpretation of Genesis 1 and the understanding of creation in uh, Catholicism and then reference uh, to uh, the transformation of species and evolutionary theory. Uh, then uh, analysis of what I call a theological status of evolution. If we assume that evolution does happen, uh, so we uh, should ask a question 
what evolution is with respect to God and his creative action and continual action in uh, nature. Uh, so uh, the question of whether evolution is a part of divine creation or maybe uh, not necessarily, maybe it is a part of divine governance of the universe. Uh, next uh, area or next question, the analysis of divine and creaturely action in evolutionary changes. If evolution does happen and we want to say that God is involved, so in what way and what is the relationship between God's action in evolution and uh, the action of creatures who are engaged in this process. Then a uh, challenging question of evil, uh, here natural and physical evil. Here again, the classical school uh, will have something to say. And eventually, one of the most difficult questions which raised uh, many uh, criticisms at the very beginning when uh, the theory was formulated by Darwin, uh, that is development of, of or human speciation uh, or anthropogenesis on the one hand theological on the other hand biological and how can we or whether we can meet them uh, uh, and have them together in any way so these are all areas where i believe the thomistic uh, thought and aristotelian thomistic thought is help might be helpful and has something interesting to say now if you are interested uh, i speak and write about almost all those things and I will have a, a book coming uh, I have a number of article and uh, articles and a book coming from Cambridge this year on the Thomistic contemporary uh, to Aristotelian Thomistic version of theistic uh, evolutionism uh, and I don't have time tonight to address all those issues so I cho chose uh, to speak about uh, first uh, I will begin with theology and uh, the exegesis and interpretation of Genesis 1 because I think it is like closest to us as uh, believers, also to those who are not specialists in uh, philosophy or theology, then I will uh, uh, jump to philosophy, actually, that will be the most difficult part of this lecture. I will try to say something about those metaphysical aspects of bio biological uh, transformations, and then uh, I will uh, say also a few words on uh, my ideas uh, uh, on uh, with respect to uh, the theological status of evolution. Okay? so. Let's begin with interpretation of Genesis 1. Uh, so um, we have to be aware of the fact uh, when we just approach the topic of uh, the problem or the theory of evolution uh, from the theological perspective, uh, that uh, the interpretation of Genesis 1 uh, is complex uh, and it has uh, many uh, theologians who throughout the entire history of Christianity thought uh, about the interpretation uh, or how to approach uh, hexameron, this description of six days. Uh, well, some say six days of creation. I don't like this term. I would rather say the work of six days, and I will explain in a minute why. Uh, so, but in the beginning of Christianity, a number of uh, early fathers of the church, they do interpret uh, Genesis literally. And they do so because the science of their times uh, kind of allows for it. Uh, no one knows how old actually the earth is. There's no science of geology. Uh, so they think, well, you could interpret Genesis in this way. Uh, so for example, St. Victorinus would say, God created all the mass to adorn, adorn his majesty in precisely six days. Uh, and the list of, uh, again, early fathers of the church who thought in this way is, uh, is, is significant, I would say. 
But at the same time, early on, we have Origen who develops those three senses of scripture, which will be then developed uh, by other thinkers. Uh, he speaks about literal, moral, and spiritual, which allows uh, them back then uh, to think in a less literal way about at least some uh, uh, parts or, or, or uh, stories in the Bible. What is interesting for us here is that uh, among fathers of the church early on, I put the dates so that you may be aware uh, of uh, where it was, we find those like St. Basil the Great, Ambrose of Milan, or John Damascus, who on the one hand uh, speak directly about six days uh, as 24 hour periods, but they uh, carefully read Genesis and they what they find there is this first statement that Genesis makes, which is, in the beginning God created uh, the, uh, the earth uh, and, uh, and that's it. So they say that the universe as such was created instantaneously, not in six days, but instantaneously, uh, which is captured by this first sentence in Genesis, or even ahead of time. Uh, so uh, that uh, already uh, is a very significant change uh, in interpretation. Once again, everything was created instantaneously in the first moment, uh, not throughout the six days. They will have to interpret those six days in a different way. Uh, they don't develop uh, such uh, prof deeper or uh, mm, uh, more developed uh, interpretation of those six days, but it will come later. Uh, but before that, we also find those among fathers of the church uh, who uh, suggest that those six days uh, can be reinterpreted in a way, in this way where uh, each day means not 24 hours, but maybe a thousand of years. Later on, when geology would be discovered in 19th century, there will be those who would uh, extend those days to millions of years or tens of millions of, uh, of years. But St. Cyprian would be an example of somebody who does that already uh, in the third century. The crucial uh, step that uh, is being made is the interpretation of uh, Genesis offered by St. Augustine. Uh, he struggled with this text. He produced uh, at least three commentaries. Uh, and I will quote from uh, the last one, which he accomplishes around year 415 which is the most developed and, uh, and finished and accomplished. He didn't finish the former one. Uh, and Augustine builds on, I believe, on this tradition that I um, uh, shortly described here a minute ago. And uh, he says something profound. Uh, he says uh, this, God made everything together without any moments of time intervening. So Augustine believes that, that, again, the stuff was created ex nihilo at once, momentarily, and this is creation, okay? Uh, and therefore, he says, we should not think of those six days of which Genesis speaks as solar days. So he allows himself for, in a work which he uh, titles the literal interpretation of Genesis, he allows himself for allegorical interpretation of six days because he literally reads this first sentence again, which uh, for him is the sentence about creation. Now, uh, Augustine asks himself a question. So 
well, if God created everything in this first moment instantaneously, does that mean that everything that I see around me was there present? And he says, probably not. And he uh, introduces a term that, was, uh, that comes from a Greek Stoic philosophy. Uh, and this term is uh, the category of seed principles in Latin rationes seminales, but in Greek, logoi uh, spermaticoi. And there are other uh, also uh, terms that he uses for the same category. Uh, so he claims this, God unfolds the generations which he laid up in creation when he first founded it. So his claim is this, God created everything in this one instantaneous uh, act of creation, but not everything was actualized. There are some things that were hidden. Now I'm using categories that he does not openly or explicitly use, but he means that. Many things that we see around us came into existence later and they were hidden in the potentiality of mother, this primordial mother. And they were like seeds hidden in this mother. So he says again, God created all creatures together whose visible forms he produces through the ages, working even until now, says Augustine. Which means that for him, those things may be actualized while, when he's alive. So well, many, at least thousand years later. Now, Augustine then uh, meditates on this meaning uh, or of this category, rationes uh, seminales, and he says this, they are like the principle whereby we grow old. Even if we don't see uh, this uh, principle, uh, the, those rationes seminales, by another kind of knowledge, we conclude that there is in nature some hidden force by which latent forms are brought into view. Uh, so there is a principle by which we grow old, says Augustine. I don't see it, but it is in this material being. And in an analogical way, he says, uh, there is some hidden force in matter by which latent forms so forms that are in a way hidden in matter are brought into view. So uh, again, another uh, passage. There is indeed in seeds some likeness to what I'm talking about. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, rationes uh, seminales. But uh, the truth is that uh, the seed principle of which I speak is even more basic. Uh, he is trying, to, as if he was trying to say, it's not the material stuff hidden in matter, but some sort of potentiality, which would be a metaphysical principle that is hidden in matter, uh, which comes before the familiar seeds that we know. And because of all this that Augustine says, when the theory of evolution was introduced very early on, uh, first Catholics who reacted to uh, the theory of evolution and uh, wanted to bring it at peace with theology immediately went to Augustine. Uh, and uh, among them were those who claimed, well, it's not necessarily a completely new idea from the theological point of view because we have all this tradition. Now, we have to be careful, and they were criticized, and rightly so, uh, for following reasons. Augustine does not hold that species can arise from one another, right? Uh, he only says that they are somehow hidden uh, in uh, this primordial matter. So, uh, we may say that although, therefore, although he accepted gradualism, uh, he should not be regarded as the precur uh, precursor of the modern evolutionary theory. 
This is a substantial and important difference here. More than this, uh, for Augustine, the number of those species will be fixed, right? So we deal here with a sort of pre-established harmony and also pre-formationism, which means uh, those, what he says, latent forms, these are, uh, well, so here, uh, the difficulty here is the interpretation of those raciones seminales, again, uh, in addition to what he says. Because Augustine uh, is not clear uh, when it comes to those, uh, to, this time, to this category of latent forms. So it's not clear to what extent Augustine wants to say uh, or speak about potentiality in matter, or to what extent he actually speaks about already actualized, but in a very, very, very early uh, stage, actualized act, uh, forms, okay? For those who know philosophy and theology a little bit better, you will, uh, I hope you will see uh, the difference here. And this is, this is a very important difference. Uh, what I want to say is that Augustine does not have the category of pure potentiality like Aquinas, of, which, of whom I, uh, I will speak in a minute. Uh, and also, uh, so therefore, there is a question of novelty of those natural kinds. So Darwin wouldn't like this, because Darwin would like to say, I want to claim that there can be new forms of life that did not pre-exist in any way. They were not like latent forms somehow ready and waiting in this primordial mother. And uh, also Darwin wouldn't like this, the, the fact that the number of those forms is fixed by God at the beginning and that's it. And there is another long conversation in Augustine himself, which I don't have time to address, I will just shortly mention it. Uh, the question about the possibility and or necessity of direct divine intervention in actualization of those hidden forms, okay? Uh, uh, so the question, so Augustine in one uh, place would say uh, that when the conditions are proper, those forms actualized by themselves, they are actualized. So there's no need of di direct divine action. But on the other hand, there are places where he would say there is a need of uh, divine and miraculous direct divine action, which obviously the first one Darwin would accept, the second one he wouldn't like that much. Now we go to Aquinas, uh, who, uh, offers us, first of all, uh, a very important methodological principle, uh, which he applies to theology in general, but it so happens that he uh, defies it when he thinks about creation. So it's very neat and helpful for us here. Uh, Aquinas says this, uh, this is his principle, uh, which he uh, formulates in the first uh, work that he wrote uh, as, uh, after he finished his studies. He says this, with respect to the beginning of the world, something pertains to the very substance of our faith, namely that the world began by creation. And all the saints agree in this, and you have to believe this to be a Christian period. But how and in what order this was, this was done pertains to faith only incidentally, insofar as it is treated in the scripture. The truth of which the saints save in uh, uh, in the uh, different explanations that they offer. Uh, so again, this is, this is a very profound uh, meta methodological principle uh, in our approach to scripture there's, uh, and our faith. There are, there's an aspect of uh, this account in Genesis that you have to believe, and which is the truth that everything is created by God ex nihilo, as Aquinas would believe, 
but what in terms of the order how things in which things came into existence uh, uh, and how the creation developed uh, here there are various opinions and he is aware of the at least two schools one is the school of Augustine and he says about this school this the first explanation of uh, these things namely the one held by Augustine is more subtle the one that introduces this uh, this potentiality dormant in matter. It's more subtle and it better defends scripture against the ridicule of unbelievers who simply you know, look around themselves and say, well, changes do not take place uh, that uh, fast such that everything would come into existence in just six days. So Aquinas says in conversation with them, Augustine's interpretation is neat and helpful. But there is also the second interpretation, the more literal interpretation, which is maintained by the other saints, and it is easier to grasp for who? For those who do not have education, who, do, who never studied philosophy and theology, who basically, as simple Christians, read the Bible. It is easier to grasp for them because it is a vivid uh, you know, description and a vivid picture that uh, Genesis paints for us of God creator. Uh, so Thomas says, uh, and this is actually one of the last works uh, that he has written. So it tells us that he uh, remained consistent uh, in uh, his uh, approach here. And he says, I'm going to defend both positions. And you can uh, use both positions in different contexts. Uh, but having said this, he basically follows Augustine because he's a philosopher and he finds it, this interpretation very useful. And Thomas speaks about six, uh, uh, the, the work of six days not about the six days of creation, but about the work of six days, precisely because after early fathers of the church and after Augustine, he says that there are three steps uh, that God takes in this process. Uh, and only the first one is actually a creation, uh, an act of creation, which he calls opus ornatus, the uh, uh, creationis, the work of creation, where he says, uh, uh, what happened in this act, uh, God created mother uh, and he uh, made a distinction between the heavens and that what was under the heavens, the uh, ground, the, the earth covered with waters. So Aquinas would uh, add in his interpretation, he would say, well, uh, the biblical author mentions only uh, earth and water, but he must have been aware uh, about uh, that other two elements are air and fire, but he was talking and uh, writing to uneducated people and uh, he didn't say this because he thought maybe that it would be difficult for them to uh, think about air and fire as elements. As, uh, so this is his interpretation. But what is important for us, again, creation is here. What happens next for Aquinas is the uh, is opus distinctionis, which means uh, the work of distinction. God uh, makes distinctions uh, or divides those uh, realms uh, in the created universe. Uh, the earth is separated from the sea, and on the third day we have production of plants. Uh, importantly, Aquinas uses term production here. Uh, uh, so he's not entirely consistent in distinguishing between production and creation. Sometimes he would speak about creation in terms of production. Sometimes about what we would think should be production, he uses the creation. So he's not entirely consistent, but in one of my papers, I actually traced those many uh, or a number of those points in Aquinas. And I think that uh, having said that he's not entirely consistent, 
he makes actually the distinction between creation and production, where production is bringing uh, something from already existing matter. And he mentions uh, plants on the third day because the, uh, the ancients, as the author of uh, the book of Genesis, they thought plants were not alive because they didn't move. Now Aquinas knows after Aristotle that plants are alive, but he reads Genesis and he places uh, the, the production of plants on the third day. And the last uh, uh, step that God takes is the work of adornment, uh, opus ornatus. And here Aquinas says this is the production of celestial bodies and animals and the creation of human beings uh, because uh, obviously uh, Aquinas believes that human souls are created ex nihilo. Okay, so the category of creation comes back here. So this is profound and this is important. Uh, why? Because again, creation for Aquinas would be this first primordial act of bringing most, uh, the, the most preliminary stuff into existence. This is creation. Uh, and then Aquinas buys into Aqu Augustine's notion of rationes seminales, although he doesn't use the term very often, rather seldom, but it's 100% clear that he uh, implicitly uses it many times, and especially when he speaks about uh, mm, or interprets the work of six days in his Summa Theologiae. So uh, I'm bringing like, uh, mm, I bring together different passages uh, 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 so to make it shorter. So he's, he would say, say this, plants and trees might have been produced in their origin or causes, that is the earth received the power to produce them later on in time. They were subsequently brought into existence in the work of propagation, not creation, but propagation. Similar with fishes and birds, they were produced by the nature of waters on that fifth day potentially, and animals whose production was potential as well. So uh, God gave, in a way, uh, those existing already uh, elements, water, earth, uh, he gave them potency uh, to be actualized later on in time. Uh, so is Aquinas' philosophy and theology therefore open to evolution? Well, uh, following Augustine, Aquinas does not hold that species can again arise one from another. So he accepts gradualism after Aqu Augustine, which is not uh, equivalent to the modern evolutionary theory. So it would be wrong to say that he's I don't know, more open uh, explicitly to the theory of evolution. He couldn't have been because the biology of uh, his day was different. Uh, but uh, there is, uh, and also, I'm sorry, and also he uh, has his own, uh, you know, deliberation on whether the direct divine action was necessary and in respect to which species. He's trying to be more, uh, more, uh, ex like more precise here but I think he doesn't manage to be uh, entirely because in my opinion, simply people were asking different questions back then. Uh, so in one of my, of my articles or two of them, I actually uh, in details uh, discuss uh, this entire issue about direct divine intervention here. But what is important in Aquinas, which was not present in Augustine, which I think is absolutely uh, uh, phenomenal and, and, and interesting here, is that Aquinas after Aristotle offers a notion of potentiality that actually allows for entirely new entities to come into existence on the course of history, 
such that this potentiality is not uh, limited in the beginning uh, by God uh, to a certain number of concrete things that can be actualized in time. Uh, rather, uh, Aristotelian notion of potentiality opens uh, the door uh, to a wide, I would say virtually unlimited uh, range of possible forms that can be instantiated. How does it do it? Uh, well, I will explain it right now, and this will be the most difficult part of this uh, lecture. So uh, we go to hylomorphism. Okay, so uh, Aquinas after Aristotle believes uh, this, that every entity, in this case a living organism, consists uh, of two metaphysical principles. Uh, existence and essence. Existence is the very fact that something exists. We don't usually reflect on this, but this is really profound, the fact that something exists and can exist. And then the essence, that is what a given thing is. So I exist and I am something, and those two aspects are profound. When it comes to the essence uh, of things, that is what they are, he then distinguishes two uh, further metaphysical principles that make uh, it uh, be what it is, uh, the essence. The first of them is matter. Okay, so there are uh, so so there are various levels of, uh, or, or at least two levels of, uh, uh, um, under two levels of what of deliberation on what matter is for Aristotle and Aquinas. One level would be a physical stuff, tangible physical stuff. This is matter, and it can be shaped in different ways. But what they uh, want to say, Aristotle and Aquinas after him, is that what underlies this tangible matter, which is called uh, 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 secondary matter for them, is primary matter, which is pure potentiality of there being something, okay? Uh, we may make a reference here to the field theory in physics, right? Uh, it is an analogy only because in physics, uh, any field will be a physical state, whereas here we are talking about a metaphysical principle, which is not a physical state. It is it is metaphysical principle of potentiality, of possibility of, of being. And then it is being actualized uh, by substantial form which again is not just a geometrical shape. It, geometrical shape is part of it, but it is way more profound because this is a category or principle that for both Aristotle and Aquinas makes, makes things to be what they are in all their aspects. So let's say we have an animal that runs, eats, uh, makes all different uh, things or does, I'm sorry, all uh, various different things. So for them, substantial form would be responsible for all these activities. It will organize matter on those both levels of matter in a way such that uh, we end up with an organism of a given type. Why is it important? Because uh, for changes to happen in the universe, uh, therefore, uh, uh, for changes to happen, or, or the way in which changes happen, uh, or to say it in yet another way, they introduce those categories uh, not only to explain what things are, but also how things persist and, and how they change into other things. Uh, so the claim uh, is this. When uh, substantial change happens, 
there needs to be something that uh, remains uh, or provides the continuity, so remains in a way unchanged, and there needs to be some novelty. Uh, uh, when a dramatic change happens where something becomes something completely different, okay? So the claim uh, is uh, this. When uh, uh, substance A changes into substance B, and substance, substance A is a tangible metaphysic, uh, physical stuff, uh, this is materia secunda for them. Uh, when this happens, we uh, can think about this change on two levels of uh, metaphysical inquiry, okay? So uh, what, uh, again, underlies, uh, let's take a wooden log that we put into a fireplace and it burns. What underlies a, a wooden log, uh, would say Aristotle and Aquinas, I mean, I say this based on their philosophy, they would say it in a different way. What underlies it is, again, this, this very uh, primordial principle of potentiality, the possibility of, their, of being something. And because this is pure potentiality, metaphysically speaking, it can be actualized by any substantial form. So we take the possibility of the universe, uh, of there being anything in the universe. So this possibility can be actualized by virtually any logical possible form, and there, that's why we have all those things in the universe, okay? So this potentiality, this deepest level of metaphysical level of, of, of potentiality is, we may say, absolute potentiality in a way, pure potentiality. But uh, when uh, uh, this potentiality is actualized by a given form, a substantial form of the type A and accidental forms of the type A. For example, let's say I have my wooden log. The substance would be wood, substantial form of a wood. It is not a tree anymore, but a wood because it's not alive anymore. And it has accidental properties. It has length, it has color, it has shape. Uh, these are accidental things, uh, forms that, uh, and uh, properties that I can change. I can cut it in half. It will still be a wooden log, but now in two pieces, <coughs> right? So some accidental forms will change. The length will change, for example. So the claim is this here, which is very important. When uh, I take a wooden log, uh, because of the fact that it is a wooden log and has some sort of substantial form and accidental properties, in the next dramatic substantial change, which goes beyond just cutting in, in half, uh, it uh, uh, the matter that this wooden log is as a tangible stuff, but also uh, this underlying metaphysical uh, primary matter that is actualized in this wooden log, it is prepared or disposed to certain changes, but not all. When I put this wooden log into a fireplace, it will not turn into a butterfly, right? Because this principle of potentiality uh, is here in a way limited, especially on this level of tangible <laughs> stuff. It is limited to certain but not all possible changes, okay? Uh, so primary matter is disposed, uh, always when it is actualized, it is disposed to some changes but not all changes. But at the same time, uh, of the, here's my example of a wooden, uh, of the wooden log. At the same time, what underlies it is a pure potentiality, which always remains a pure potentiality, at least in a way. So therefore, potentiality uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, substance, uh, of substance A 
at the level of tangible physical stuff is always a relative potentiality because there's only certain types of changes that this substance can enter. Uh, uh, but underlying primary matter here is disposed again in a given way uh, such that ash will come out of this change and not something else. Uh, uh, and the new substantial form will be driven from the potentiality of matter. The matter will uh, begin to exist in a different way. Uh, but again, what, it is, what is important for us is that at the bottom metaphysical level, there is this primary matter. It is always there. Uh, and uh, therefore, in a way, all logically possible uh, uh, actualizations of primary, primary matter are possible, and they may happen down the, war, uh, down, down the road. Right? When there's a cycle of different changes, and something that is not possible now may be possible in the future according to this metaphysics. So therefore, based on this, we may actually refer to uh, some passages in Aquinas and, and build, not find in him, but build a model of evolutionary, of metaphysic, uh, metaphysical model of evolution, evolutionary transitions. So uh, in uh, his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, we find uh, this, for example. From the things which are said uh, here, and this is my, I mean, what he says there is a similar explanation that I gave here. It is evident that there is one first matter for all generable and corruptible things, this metaphysical underlying principle of potentiality. It's common for everything. But different proper matters for different things. This, the proper matter will be this secondary matter, which is physical, tangible stuff. And here, things differ. But what underlies them is the same a principle of, uh, mm, of pure potentiality, uh, mm, which he calls primary matter. And in another work, we find something absolutely fascinating from the evolutionary point of view, because Aquinas says this in a different context, but uh, it is just, I believe, to use it here. From the fact that matter is known to have a certain substantial mode of existence, matter always has a certain substantial mode of existence, like everything that surrounds us here has a certain substantial mode of existence. Matter can be understood to receive accidents by which it is disposed uh, to new uh, type of perfection. Uh, so uh, what uh, we can use this uh, passage from Aquinas for is uh, the claim that on the way of gradual changes, of gradual you know, accidental changes that happen in nature to things, primary matter that underlies uh, those uh, things may be gradually disposed such that new types of things uh, that were not able to uh, come into existence before may come into existence at a given uh, point of time, in time. And therefore, based on this, we may argue or suggest that uh, natural kinds may be thought as evolving. And this is my claim. Again, not something that you find in Aquinas, but you can build on Aquinas and, and uh, claim exactly this. So natural kinds uh, may be classified, I claim now, as lineages of closely related organisms, as biology teaches us, whose underlying primary matter is gradually disposed to be informed by novel and more perfect substantial forms, uh, you know, it used from, this is language that Aquinas uses, uh, driven from, 
brought from the potentiality of primary matter that underlies these organisms. So then an, a model would look uh, like something like this, a model of evolutionary transition. So we have a series of minor genetic and epigenetic changes within a lineage L1 of species S1. Uh, this is a biological account here, right? From philosophical point of view, uh, actually not philosophical, uh, biological slash philosophical, we have uh, that, uh, those changes lead to an accumulation of minor now phenotypic variations. From metaphysical point of view or philosophical point of view, these, these will be accidental changes, right, in organisms. When an organism has a longer leg or a longer beak, it's not a substantial change. It's an accidental change. It is still the same species, right? So this will be accidental changes. And these accidental changes, they gr which gradually accumulate in those organisms in this lineage, uh, they uh, slowly and gradually disposed, disposed this underlying principle of potentiality of there being something uh, or anything which is, again, pure potentiality and can be shaped in uh, all logically possible ways, it gradual, those uh, changes, gradual changes they, uh, that we see on the like, uh, phenomeno, uh, phenom, uh, phenomenological, uh, in our phenomenological inquiry, those changes, uh, uh, they uh, are correlated to, metaphysically speaking, a changing disposition of this very basic principle of potentiality such that at a given point when we have a regular situation of producing an, an offspring where we have an egg and sperm uh, which by the way are separate cells which is very interesting uh, and the metaphysically and philosophically speaking the relationship of those gametes to uh, to the parental organisms is an interesting question but let's leave it aside uh, normally, it would uh, produce an offspring of the same species, but because of this accumulation of changes and gradually changing disposition of this metaphysical uh, principle of potentiality, uh, we have reached a point where an organism of a new type uh, comes into existence. And therefore, we have a model, a metaphysical, philosophical model of changes uh, evolutionary in, uh, of, uh, of speciation that is built on classical philosophy, uh, but um, is not there, but is built on this uh, classical philosophy and is meaningful uh, for several, uh, several reasons. Uh, uh, but before this, uh, maybe uh, one a more in, important uh, explanation here. So uh, just trying to uh, be more specific maybe and help you maybe to better understand it. So what it, what it is founded on uh, is I call uh, uh, this fact uh, or this phenomenon two levels of potentiality, okay? Potentiality, again, can be defined as a fundamental metaphysical principle of primary matter uh, again, we may make reference to field theory in physics, uh, and where this potentiality can be actualized by any uh, logically possible substantial form, uh, and it is introduced in a speculative analysis that uh, you are trying to follow here with me bravely. Uh, I hope you understand uh, at least some of it. And then relative potentiality, uh, which is expressed or is present in primary matter actualized by some substantial form, like in this bottle, uh, which is made of plastic. It is relative potentiality because, again, I cannot do 
anything with this bottle. I can make some changes uh, and I can make a substantial change, but not all kind of substantial changes, right? Because this potentiality is limited because of the fact that it is what it is. But again, philosophically speaking, uh, if you would like to follow this, uh, this metaphysical system, it is underlined by this principle of pure potentiality uh, that uh, uh, will help us or allows us to say that down the road, uh, this thing can uh, become something uh, radically different that would not be possible right here and right now in next uh, substantial change. Uh, so I, this is my uh, scheme that I propose here. So therefore, when we have an organism which, have, which has substantial form F1 and primary matter, which underlies it, so uh, at T1, we may move to T2 and we may say, because of the fact that this organism is what it is, uh, so the next change uh, would be as a, sub, uh, no, a being, next substantial change can, for example, be only be a being of the type 2 with substantial form of, of uh, uh, SF2 and not something with substantial form uh, uh, SF2 star, uh, for example. But down the road, uh, this potentiality of this most primordial uh, principle of, poten uh, of potentiality primary matter changes gradually such that a given time Tn, something that was not possible at T2 actually is possible. So uh, on this scheme, as I believe and hope, you can already see uh, the possibilities are open uh, in, uh, you know, in, extent, in a larger extent, I mean, in, in, in a way that is incomparable with what, uh, what Augustine uh, would have. Uh, so therefore, I claim that this notion of potentiality that Aquinas has does not restrict possible life forms and possible non-living forms to a fixed and limited set of natural kinds, latent or dormant in secondary physical matter. Rather, we have here a wide scope of possible life forms that uh, goes along with uh, the evolutionary theory. So I claim that Darwin would be happy with this uh, claim that, well, all logically possible organisms can come into existence and we have a metaphysical uh, you know, model that uh, describes uh, how it happens. Uh, okay. Mm. So um, what do I want to say here? Uh, um, Aquinas's complex reflection on whether species can uh, come into, okay. So uh, uh, obviously Aquinas uh, will deliberate uh, on whether new species can come into existence. Of course he will. Uh, so I'm mentioning it because uh, those who are anti-evolutionary uh, in their approach uh, and use Aquinas <laughs> as the one who firmly states that no new species can come into existence, well, uh, Aquinas is not entirely uh, sure about that. And uh, this case shows also in a very profound way how he treated science of his days, uh, day, and that's why I mentioned it. So we find uh, passages like this one here in Aquinas, where he says this, that to the perfection of the universe, there can be added something daily with regard to the number of individuals, not however, with regard to the number of species. So, is, so for him, in a way, we could then interpret uh, his theory in this way. Yes, there is potentiality in matter and things come into existence later on, not in, not in six days, but in a way, uh, at some point, this process is 
ended. It's, and the number of species is fixed, period. Nothing else can come into existence. But then we have this. Uh, uh, let's read it together. Nothing entirely new was after uh, new was afterwards made by God after the six days of um, the work of six days, but all things subsequ subsequently made had in a sense been made before in the work of six days. But now look what he says: species uh, species also that are new, if any such appear, existed beforehand in various active powers, so that animals and perhaps even new species of animals are produced by putrefaction uh, by the power of which the stars and elements received at the beginning. So there, he sees rotting meat uh, under the, you know, the, with the energy of sun coming there. And it seems to them back then that uh, worms come out of it. Okay. Again, says adds Aquinas, animals of new kinds, these are new species, arise occasionally. So he acknowledges actually that they do arise occasionally from the connection uh, of individuals belonging to different species. Okay, uh, so he has crossbreeding. Uh, so this is the science of his day. So Aquinas. Uh, so what happens here is this, in my opinion, his philosophy and theology uh, and interpretation of the Bible want or make him to say, as I said a minute ago, things came into existence in a prolonged period of time, and that's over, and no new species come into existence. This is what flows from uh, the biblical account and what flows from, uh, from uh, also Aristotle. But now, the science of his days, uh, day say, says something different. There actually are new species that come from rotten meat and uh, from crossbreeding. So Aquinas, uh, what does he do? He says uh, he does something that actually Augustine uh, advises us to do, where Augustine says, if uh, science of your day, I mean, I'm paraphrasing him, uh, introduces something that goes against the scripture, uh, we should somehow reinterpret the scripture because they cannot go one against each other, another because uh, there's one truth. So Aquinas says, well, the science of my day says that there actually are new species, this is not a regular stuff that happens. This is something weird that happens, but it does happen. And I do not say they are wrong and it cannot happen because the Bible says it never happens. I rather say they were somehow present in what happened uh, in those six days. And I don't know why, but they were somehow present uh, in those six days such that uh, they are only, actualized only now. Okay, That tells us something profound in, about his approach uh, to science. Uh, so, uh, again, the universe in the beginning was perfect as regards uh, nature, uh, nature's causes from which afterwards other things could be propagated, but not as regards to all their effects. So maybe there are effects of causes that got created that go beyond uh, what was there in the beginning, and maybe they still bring something that was not there. So maybe indirectly here we also have an opening for evolution uh, for for like new stuff coming into existence of new type 
Uh, and then uh, an early, uh, inter uh, um, an early, uh, yes, I'm going to uh, finish soon. I'm, I'm doing quite well with time, uh, actually. Uh, uh, don't worry. Uh, I say it all to myself, actually. Uh, so uh, the universe can be made. So Aquinas asks himself, is the universe God created perfect or not? So he says, it can be made better in what way? Uh, through the addition of many parts. Uh, that is to say, so that many other species would be created and thus God could made, uh, have made in this way the universe better and can, he can still do it, says Aquinas. So it seems that God can add new species, says uh, Aquinas. Uh, mm, again, the universe, when God made things out of nothing, he did not at once bring them from nothingness to their ultimate natural perfection, but conferred on them as fir at first an imperfect being and afterwards per perfected them so that the world was brought gradually from nothingness to its ultimate perfection. So again, maybe this process is still ongoing. So by bringing all those quotations, uh, I want to say that it's not, Aquinas doesn't have one answer. He is a complicated thinker who is in touch with the science of his day and he's open to like, you know, reinterpret uh, 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 the scripture in a creative way. Okay, so the end of uh, philosophy and metaphysics here. Uh, now I go uh, back uh, maybe more to theology. And the last question I would like to ask here, uh, which is very important for me, because I think that in the conversation about uh, evolution uh, from the side of theology, there's a lot of misunderstanding and uh, difficulty, terminological difficulty, uh, with respect to this question, okay? Does therefore God, if evolution happens and we believe in God and we would like to say that, uh, well, uh, God is present in evolution, so then in what way God is present in evolution? Could we say that God creates ev in evolution and creation is a, still an ongoing process? Well, I think it's a, a complicated issue. Uh, what happens today is that theistic evolutionists uh, commonly emphasize uh, that divine act of creation is not limited to this original bringing uh, of stuff into this ex into existence, as I mentioned before, uh, out of nothing, but that this uh, act of God is extended in time and is still ongoing. Okay, you will find it in many textbooks on creation today and also in uh, works on evolution uh, from the theological perspective. In support of this assertion, many contemporary theologians refer to the category uh, of continuous creation <laughs> in Latin creatio continua, okay? Uh, which uh, in a way replaces an older category of divine conservation of being, uh, which Aquinas uses, okay? So uh, what happens here, a little and but important dig uh, digression here. Uh, the term creatio continua was never used by, by Aquinas. One of his early interpreters says that Aquinas uses it, but Aquinas does not. But later on, people begin to use this term more and more. But Aquinas has a clear distinction, which is very wise and very smart. Again, where, when he says, wait a second, creation is ex nihilo. And it is this one primordial act made by God, and it's done with ex uh, exception for our human souls, for many theological, a number of theological reasons that I don't have time to address here. But everything else 
for, in my opinion, for Aquinas, would not be creation. Okay? Uh, so I think that this is completely wrong term, which we should uh, refute and uh, reject in theology, creatio continua. Or at least it shouldn't be used with, without great, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, like people, we should be very careful when we use this term. Because those theologians who claim that God creates through evolution, they say, uh, therefore, uh, uh, well, logically follows uh, from it, logically follows the claim that, well, God now is sharing his divine action with creatures who co-create with God. Okay. Uh, well, I claim that for Aquinas, it would be a total mistake and equivocation. Uh, because uh, Aquinas says uh, clearly this again. Creation means that God brings things into existence ex nihilo. And more than this, if ex nihilo, that means that in a way all, all being of things emanates from God, not being divine, but emanates from God as a universal cause. And, uh, let's, uh, uh, and therefore creation was once again instantaneous and therefore Aquinas would add, and I agree with him and he's smart, and he says this, it is absolutely impossible for any creature to create, either by its own action or even as an instrument used by God. Why? Because to create is to make something to exist ex nihilo and for that you need to be omnipotent for God's sake. Uh, so, uh, I mean, Creatures cannot create, period. Okay? Uh, and then in Summa Contra Gentiles, you will find an entire chapter where, where he presents us with an entire list of arguments why it is absolutely stupid and invalid to say that creatures can create. And uh, therefore, once again, in this context, I claim that evolutionary processes should be classified as, again, productio, that is processes within which an already existing matter is being transformed, giving origin to new types of non-living and living entities. And as such, uh, they, those processes belong not to divine creation, but to divine governance of the created universe. The mistake that many people do, there are two mistakes here. We tend to think that when something new that was not at all present in nature before comes into existence, it must, be it must be creation ex nihilo. No, it doesn't have to be creation ex nihilo. Not directly. Everything is created ex nihilo, but indirectly rather than directly. Most of the stuff uh, is made out of existing uh, matter. And the other mistake that is being made is, uh, the other side of the same mistake, is that when people simply in theology want to be friends with science, so in my paper that I published last year on exactly this topic uh, in uh, the Journal of Theology and Science, I virtually go against, every, I mean, many people in contemporary theology, including Pope John Paul II, Benedict and Francis, uh, because I think it's mistaken uh, uh, to say things like that. Uh, so whenever evolutionary processes are characterized as being a part or an aspect of divine creation, I, I claim we must very carefully clarify that they may be classified as such only indirectly and in a derivative sense. Okay, being just here, some uh, theologians do so, but not always and not clear enough, in my opinion. And when they enter into this claim that creatures co-create with God, um, I think that this 
statement is absolutely wrong and invalid. Uh, again, we therefore distinguish between creatio ex nihilo, conservation of things in uh, being, and governance of things by God, which, yes, includes transformation of this matter such that new things come into existence. Therefore, I claim that the category of evolutionary creation is inadequate, and it's wrong, and it should be abandoned, and we should rather speak about God acting in and through evolutionary processes uh, which are part of his uh, providential governance of the universe uh, and a way in which he brings the universe to its eschatological uh, fulfillment. I was about I was to speak an hour and actually an hour has passed and I have finished. So again, these are those other topics that we could uh, discuss here, uh, but uh, I wanted to uh, squeeze in an hour. Uh, those uh, three that I uh, am uh, like uh, uh, what uh, made more visible on this slide. If you are interested in evolutionary <coughs> theory from the point of view of the classical Aristotelian Thomistic uh, uh, philosophy and theology, because obviously the literature is absolutely vast uh, from all other perspectives in theology and philosophy. So from the Thomistic point perspective, these are, I would say, uh, most important publications in recent times, and I included several papers of mine, and the title of this upcoming book, if you were uh, interested in it, uh, where I uh, spent much more time on various aspects. And I do spend uh, uh, the last chapters in anthropogenesis, which is absolutely difficult and yet fascinating, uh, the question about uh, whether it is possible to have both uh, biological evolutionary anthropogenesis and the biblical anthropogenesis. Uh, but uh, I will leave you in suspense uh, if you would like to know on this. Thank you very much uh, for your attention. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.